Chapter Three of Babbitt, recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Babbitt, by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Three. To George F. Babbitt, as to most prosperous citizens of the zenith, his motor car was poetry and tragedy, love and heroism. The office was his pirate ship, but the car, his perilous excursion ashore. Among the tremendous crises of each day. None was more dramatic than starting the engine. It was slow on cold mornings. There was the long, anxious whirr of the starter, and sometimes he had to drip ether into the cocks of the cylinders, which was so very interesting that at lunch he would chronicle it drop by drop and orally calculate how much each drop had cost him. This morning he was darkly prepared to find something wrong, and he felt belittled when the mixture exploded sweet and strong, and the car didn't even brush the door-jam, gouged and splintery with many bruisings by fenders, as he backed out of the garage. He was confused. He shouted, "'Mornin!' to Sam Doppelbrow, with more cordiality than he had intended. Babbitt's green-and-white Dutch colonial house was one of three on that block of Chatham Road. To the left of it was the residence of Mr. Samuel Doppelbrow secretary of an excellent firm of bathroom fixture jobbers. His was a comfortable house with no architectural manners whatever. A large wooden box with a squat tower, a broad porch and glossy paint, yellow as a yoke. Babbitt disapproved of Mr. and Mrs. Doppelieu as bohemian. From their house came midnight music and obscene laughter. There were neighborhood rumors of bootleg whiskey and fast motor rides. They furnished Babbitt with many happy evenings of discussion, during which he announced firmly, "'I'm not straight-laced, and I don't mind seeing a fellow throw a drink once in a while, but when it comes to deliberately trying to get away with a lot of hell-raising, all the while like the Doppelrolls do, it's too rich for my blood.'" On the other side of Babbitt lived Howard Littlefield, Ph.D., in a strictly modern house, whereof the lower part was dark and red tapestry brick, with a leaded oriel, the upper part of pale stucco, like spattered clay, and the roof red-tiled. Littlefield was the great scholar of the neighborhood, the authority on everything in the world except babies, cooking, and motors. He was a Bachelor of Arts of Blodgett College and a Doctor of Philosophy and Economics of Yale. He was the employment manager and publicity counsel of the Zenith Street Traction Company. He could, on ten hours' notice, appear before the board of aldermen or the state legislature, and prove absolutely with figures all in rows, and with precedents from Poland and New Zealand, that the streetcar company loved the public and yearned over its employees, that all its stock was owned by widows and orphans, and that whatever it desired to do, would benefit property owners by increasing rental values and help the poor by lowering rents. All his acquaintances turned to Littlefield when they desired to know the date of the Battle of Saragossa, the definition of the word sabotage, the future of the German mark, the translation of Hinc Ilie Lacrimoni, or the number of products of coal tar. He awed Babbitt by confessing that he often sat up till midnight reading the figures and footnotes in government reports, or skimming, with amusement at the author's mistakes, the latest volumes of chemistry, archaeology, and ichthyology. But Littlefield's great value was as a spiritual example. 
Despite his strange learnings, he was as strict a Presbyterian and as firm a Republican as George F. Babbitt. He confirmed the businessmen in the faith, where they knew only by passionate instinct that their system of industry and manners was perfect. Dr. Howard Littlefield proved it to them out of history, economics, and the confessions of reformed radicals. Babbitt had a good deal of honest pride in being the neighbor of such a savant, and in Ted's intimacy with Eunice Littlefield, at sixteen, Eunice was interested in no statistics save those regarding the ages and salaries of motion-picture stars. But as Babbitt definitively put it, she was her father's daughter. The difference between a light man like Sam Dopperoo, and a fairly fine character like Littlefield, was revealed in their appearances. Dopperoo was disturbingly young for a man of forty-eight. He wore his derby on the back of his head, and his red face was wrinkled with meaningless laughter. But Littlefield was an old man of forty-two. He was tall, broad, thick. His gold-rimmed spectacles were engulfed in the folds of his long face. His hair was a tossed mass of greasy blackness. He puffed and rumbled as he talked. His five-bitter kappa key shone against the spotty black vest. He smelled of old pipes. He was altogether funeral and archidonical, and to real estate brokerage and the jobbing of bathroom fixtures, he added an aroma of sanctity. This morning he was in front of his house, inspecting the grass parking between the curb and the broad cement sidewalk. Babbitt stopped his car and leaned out to shout, "'Mornin!' Littlefield lumbered over and stood with one foot up on the running board. "'Fine morning,' said Babbitt, lighting illegally early his second cigar of the day. "'Yes, it's a mighty fine morning,' said Littlefield. "'Spring come along fast now.' "'Yes, it's real spring now, all right,' said Littlefield. "'Still cold nights, though.' Had to have a couple of blankets on the sleeping porch last night. Yes, it wasn't any too warm last night, said Littlefield. But I don't anticipate we'll have any more real cold weather now. No, but still, there was snow at Taffas, Montana, yesterday, said the scholar. And you remember the blizzard they had out west three days ago, thirty inches of snow in Greeley, Colorado. And two years ago... We had a snow squall right here in Zenith on the 25th of April. Is that a fact? Say, old man, what do you think about the Republican candidate? Who will they nominate for president? Don't you think it's about time we had a real business administration? In my opinion, what the country needs first and foremost is a good, sound, business-like conduct of its affairs. What we need is a business administration, said Littlesfield. I'm glad to hear you say that. I certainly am glad to hear you say that. I don't know how you'd feel about it, with all your associations with colleges and so on, and I'm glad you feel that way. What the country needs just at this present juncture is neither a college president nor a lot of monkeying with foreign affairs, but a good, sound, economical business administration that will give us a chance to have something like a decent turnover. Yes, it isn't generally realized that even in China the schoolmen are giving way to more practical men, and, of course, you can see what that implies. It is a fact. Well, well, breathed Babbitt, 
feeling much calmer and much happier about the way things were going in the world. Well, it's been nice to stop and parlez-vous a second. Guess I'll have to get down to the office now and sting a few clients. Well, so long, old man. See you tonight. So long. Two. They had labored, these solid citizens, twenty years before. The hill on which Floral Heights was spread, with its bright roofs and immaculate turf and amazing comfort, had been a wilderness of rank second-growth elms and oaks and maples. Along the precise streets were still a few wooded vacant lots and the fragment of an old orchard. It was brilliant today. The apple boughs were lit with fresh leaves like torches of green fire. The first white of cherry blossoms flickered down a gully, and robins clamored. Babbitt sniffed the earth, chuckled at the hysteric robins, as he would have chuckled at kittens or at a comic movie. He was, to the eye, the perfect office-going executive, a well-fed man in a correct brown soft hat and frameless spectacles, smoking a large cigar, driving a good motor along a semi-suburban parkway. But in him was some genus of authentic love for his neighborhood, his city, his clan. The winter was over, the time has come for the building the visible growth, which to him was glory. He lost his dawn depression, he was rudely cheerful, and he stopped on Smith Street to leave the brown trousers and to have the gasoline tank filled. The familiarity of the right fortified him, the sight of the tall red iron gasoline pump, the hollow tile and terracotta garage, the window full of the most agreeable accessories, shiny casings, spark plugs, and immaculate porcelain jacklets, tire-chains of gold and silver. He was flattered by the friendliness with which Sylvester Moon, dirtiest and most skilled of motor mechanics, came out to serve him. "'Morning, Mr. Babbitt,' said Moon, and Babbitt himself felt person of importance, one whose name even busy garagemen remembered, not one of those cheap sports flying around in flivers. He admired the ingenuity of the automatic dial, clicking off gallon by gallon, admired the smartness of the sign. A fill in time saves getting stuck, gas today, thirty-one cents. Admired the rhythmic gurgle of the gasoline as it flowed into the tank, and the mechanical regularity with which Moon turned the handle. "'How much we taking today?' asked Moon, in a manner which combined the independence of a great specialist, the friendliness of a familiar gossip, and respect for a man of weight in the community, like George F. Babbitt. "'Fill her up!' "'Who you rootin' for, for Republican candidate, Mr. Babbitt?' "'It's too early to make any predictions yet. After all, there's still a good month and two weeks. No, three weeks. Must be almost three weeks. Well—' There's more than six weeks in all before the Republican convention, and I feel a fellow ought to keep an open mind and give all the candidates a show. Look em all over and size em up, and then decide carefully. That's a fact, Mr. Babbitt. But I'll tell you, and my stand on this is just the same as it was four years ago and eight years ago, and it'll be my stand four years from now, yes, and eight years from now. What I tell everybody, and it can't be too generally understood, is that what we need first, last, and all the time is a good, sound business administration. By golly, that's right. How do those front tires look to you? Fine, fine. Wouldn't be much work for garages if everybody looked after their cars the way you do. Well, I do try to have some sense about it. 
Babbitt paid his bill, said adequately, Oh, keep the change, and drove off in an ecstasy of honest self-appreciation. It was with the manner of a good Samaritan that he shouted to a respectable-looking man who was waiting for a trolley-car, Have a lift! As the man climbed in, Babbitt condescended. Goin' clear downtown? Whenever I see a fellow waitin' for a trolley, I always make it a practice to give him a lift. Unless, of course, he looks like a bum. Wish there were more folks that were so generous with their machines, dutifully said the victim of benevolence. Oh, no, tain't a question of generosity, hardly. Fact, I always feel I was saying to my son just the other night, it's a fellow's duty to share the good things of his world with his neighbors, and it gets my goat when a fellow gets stuck on himself and goes around tooting his horn merely because he's charitable. The victim seemed unable to find the right answer. Babbitt boomed on. Pretty punk service the company given us on these car lines. Nonsense to only run the Portland road cars once every seven minutes. Fellow gets mighty cold on a winter morning, waiting on a street corner with the wind nipping at his ankles. That's right. The streetcar company doesn't care a damn what kind of a deal they give us. Something ought to happen to them. Babbitt was alarmed. Uh, but still, of course, it won't do to just keep knocking the traction company and not realize the difficulties they're operating under like these cranks that want municipal ownership the way these workmen hold up the company for high wages is simply a crime and of course the burden falls on you and me that have to pay a seven cent fare fact there's remarkable service on all their lines considering well uneasily darn fine morning babbitt explained spring coming along fast yes it's a real spring now the victim had no originality no wit and babbitt fell into a great silence and devoted himself to the game of beating trolley cars to the corner a spurt a tail chase nervous speeding between the huge yellow side of the trolley and the jagged row of parked cars shooting past just as the trolley stopped a rare game and valiant and all the while he was conscious of the loveliness of zenith for weeks together he noticed nothing but clients and the vexing to rent signs of rival brokers today in mysterious malice he raged or rejoiced with equal nervousness swiftness and to-day the light of spring was so winsome that he lifted his head and saw he admired each district along his familiar route to the office the bungalows and shrubs and winding irregular drives of floral heights the one-story shops on smith street a glare of plate glass and new yellow brick groceries and laundries and drug stores to supply the more immediate needs of east side housewives the market gardens in dutch hollow their shanties patched with corrugated tin and stolen doors billboards with crimson godliness nine feet tall advertising cinema films pipe tobacco and talcum powder the old mansions along ninth street southeast like aged dandies in filthy linen wooden castles turned into boarding houses with muddy walks and rusty hedges jostled by fast intruding garages cheap apartment houses and fruit stands conducted by bland sleek athenians across the belt of railroad tracks factories with high-perched water tanks and tall stack factories producing condensed milk paper boxes lighting fixtures motor cars then the business center the thickening daring traffic the crammed trolleys unloading the high doorways of marble and polished granite it was big 
and Babbitt respected bigness in anything in mountains, jewels, muscles, wealth, or words. He was, for a spring-enchanted moment, the lyric and almost unselfish lover of Zenith. He thought of the outlying factory suburbs, of the Chastaloosa River, with its strongly eroded banks, of the orchard-dappled Tawadana hills to the north, and all the fat dairy land and big barns and comfortable herds. As he dropped his passenger, he cried, "'Gosh, I feel pretty good this morning.'" Three. Epical as starting the car was the drama of parking it before he entered his office. As he turned from Oberlin Avenue round the corner onto Third Street Northeast, he peered ahead for a space in the line of parked cars. He angrily just missed a space as a rival driver slid into it. Ahead another car was leaving the curb, and Babbitt slowed up holding out his hand to the cars pressing on him from behind, agitatedly, motioning an old woman to go ahead, avoiding a truck which bore down on him from one side, with front wheels nicking the wrought-iron bumper of the car in front. He stopped feverishly, cramped his steering wheel, slid back into the vacant space, and, with eighteen inches of room, maneuvered to bring the car level with the curb. It was a vile adventure, masterfully executed, with satisfaction. He locked a thief-proof steel wedge on the front wheel and crossed the street to his real estate office on the ground floor of the Reeves Building. The Reeves Building was as fireproof as a rock and as efficient as a typewriter, fourteen stories of yellow pressed brick, with clean, upright, unornamented lines. It was filled with the offices of lawyers, doctors, agents for machinery, for emery wheels, for wire fencing, for mining stock. Their gold signs shone on the windows. The entrance was too modern and to be flamboyant with pillars. It was quiet, shrewd, neat. Along the Third Street side were a Western Union Telegraph office, the Blue Delft Candy Shop, Shotwell Stationery Shop, and the Babbitt Thompson Realty Company. Babbitt could have entered his office from the street, as customers did, but it made him feel an insider to go through the corridor of the building and enter by the back door. Thus he was greeted by the villagers the little unknown people who inhabited the Reeve building corridors, elevator runners, starter, engine superintendent, and the doubtful-looking lame man who conducted the news and cigar stand. They were in no way city-dwellers. They were rustics, living in a constricted valley, interested only in one another and in the building. Their main street was the entrance hall with its stone floor, severe marble ceiling, and the inner window of the shops. The liveliest place on the street was the Reeves Building Barber Shop, but this was also Babbitt's one embarrassment. Himself, he patronized the glittering Pomegan Barber Shop in the Hotel Thornlow, and every time he passed the Reeves Shop, ten times a day, a hundred times, he felt untrue to his own village. Now, as one of the squirearchy, greeted with honorable salutation by the villagers, he marched into his office, and peace and dignity were upon him and the morning's dissonances all unheard. They were heard again immediately. Stanley Graff, the outside salesman, was talking on the telephone with tragic lack of that firm manner which disciplines clients. Say, uh, I think I got the house that would suit you, the Percival House in Linton. Oh, you've seen it? Well, how'd it strike you? Huh? Oh. Irresolutely. Oh, I see. 
as Babbitt marched into his private room, a coop with semi-partition of oak and frosted glass, at the back of the office he reflected how hard it was to find employees who had his own faith that he was going to make sales. There were nine members of the staff besides Babbitt and his partner and father-in-law, Henry Thompson, who rarely came into the office. The nine were Stanley Graff, the outside salesman, a youngish man given to cigarettes and the playing of pool, old Matt Penniman, general utility man, collector of rents and salesman of insurance, broken, silent, gray, a mystery, reputed to have been a crack real estate man with the firm of his own in haughty Brooklyn, Chester Kirby Laylock, resident salesman out at the Glen Oriole acreage development, an enthusiastic person with a silky mustache and much family, Mitch Teresa McElwin, a swift and rather pretty stenographer, Miss Wilberta Bennigan, the thick, slow, laborious accountant and file clerk, and four freelance part-time commission salesmen. As he looked from his own cage into the main room, Babbitt mourned, McGowan's a good stenog, smart as a whip, but Stan Graff and all those bums, the zest of the spring morning was smothered in the stale office air. Normally he admired the office with a pleased surprise that he could have created this sure lovely thing. Normally he was stimulated by the clean newness of it and the air of bustle, but today it seemed flat. The tile floor, like a bathroom, the ochre-colored metal ceiling, the faded maps on the hard plaster walls, the chairs of varnished pale oak, the desks and filing cabinets of steel painted in olive drab. It was a vault, a steel chapel where loafing and laughter were raw sin. He hadn't even any satisfaction in the new water-cooler, and it was the very best water-coolers, up-to-date, scientific, and right-thinking. It had cost a great deal of money, in itself a virtue. It possessed a non-conducting fiber ice container, a porcelain water jar, guaranteed hygienic, a dripless, non-crogging sanitary faucet, and machine-painted decorations in two tones of gold. He looked down the relentless stretch of tiled floor at the water cooler, and assured himself that no tenant of the Reeves building had a more expensive one. But he could not recapture the feeling of social superiority it had given him. He astoundingly grunted, I'd like to beat it off to the woods right now, and loaf all day, go to Grunch's again tonight, play poker, and cuss as much as I feel like, drink a hundred and nine thousand bottles of beer. He sighed. He read through his mail. He shouted Miss Gowan, which meant Miss McGowan, and began to dictate. This was his own version of his first letter. Omar Gribble, send it to his office, Miss McGowan. Yours of twentieth to hand in and reply would say, look here. Gribble, I'm awfully afraid if we go on shilly-shallying like this, we'll just naturally lose the Allen sale. I had Allen up on the carpet day before yesterday, got right down to cases, and think I can assure you, uh, uh, no, change that. All my experience indicates he is all right, means to do business. Looked into financial record, which is fine. That sentence seems to be a little balled up. Miss Gowan, make a couple of sentences out of it, if you have to. Period. New paragraph. He is perfectly willing to prorate the special assessment, and strikes me, I'm dead sure, there will be no difficulty in getting him to pay for title insurance. 
so now for heaven's sake let's get busy no make it that so now let's go to it and get down no that's enough you can tie those sentences up a little better when you type em miss mcgowan yours sincerely etc this is the version of his letter which he received typed from miss mcgowan that afternoon babbitt thompson realty company homes for folks reeves building oberlin avenue and third street northeast zenith omar gribble esq three seventy six north american building zenith dear mr gribble your letter of the twentieth to hand i must say i'm awfully afraid that if we go on shilly-shallying like this we'll just naturally lose the allen sale i had allen up on the carpet day before yesterday and got right down to cases all my experience indicates that he means to do business i have also looked into his financial record which is fine he is perfectly willing to prorate the special assessment and there will be no difficulty in getting him to pay for title insurance so let's go yours sincerely as he read and signed it in his correct flowing business college hand babbitt reflected now that's a good strong letter and clear as a bell now what the, I, I never told mcgowan to make a third paragraph here wish he'd quit trying to improve on my dictation but what i can't understand is why can't stan graff or chet labig write a letter like that with punch with kick the most important thing he dictated that morning was the fortnightly form letter to be mimeographed and sent out to a thousand prospects it was diligently imitative of the best literary models of the day of heart-to-heart -heart talk advertisements sales pulling letters disclosures on the development of will-power and handshaking house organs as richly poured forth by the new school of poets of business he had painfully written out the first draft and he intoned it now like a poet delicate and distinct say old man i just wanted to know can i do you a whale of a favor honest no kidding i know you're interested in getting a house not merely a place where you hang up the old bonnet but a love nest for the wife and kiddies and maybe for the fliverer out beyond be sure to spell b e y a n t miss mcgowan the spud garden say did you ever stop to think that we're here to save you trouble that's how i make a living folks don't pay us for our lovely beauty now take a look sit down at that handsome carved mahogany escotere and shoot us a line telling us just what you want and if we can find it we'll come hopping down to your lane with the good tidings and if we can't we won't bother you to save your time just fill out the blank enclosed on request we'll also send blank recording store properties in floral heights silver grove linton bellevue and all east side residential district yours for service p s just a hint of some plums we can pick for you some genuine bargains that came in today silver grove cute four-room california bungalow ami garage dandy shade tree swell neighborhood handy car line thirty seven hundred seven hundred eighty dollars down and balance liberal babbitt thompson terms cheaper than rent dorchester a corker artistic two-family house all oak trim parquet floors lovely gas log big porches colonial heated all-weather garage a bargain eleven thousand two hundred and fifty dollars dictation over with its need of sitting and thinking instead of bustling around and making a noise and really doing something babbitt sat 
creakily back in his revolving desk-chair and beamed on Miss McGowan. He was conscious of her as a girl, of black bobbed hair against demure cheeks. A longing which was indistinguishable from loneliness enfeebled him. While he waited, tapping a long precise pencil-point on the desk-tablet, he half-identified her with the fairy girl of his dreams. He imagined their eyes meeting with terrifying recognition imagined touching her lips with frightened reverence and she was chirping any more mr babbitt he grunted that winds it up i guess and turned heavily away for all his wandering thoughts they had never been more intimate than this he often reflected never forgot how old jake offutt said a wise bird never goes love-making in his own office or his own home start trouble sure but in twenty-three years of married life he had peered uneasily at every graceful ankle every soft shoulder in thought he had treasured them but not once had he hazarded respectability by adventuring now as he calculated the cost of repapering the stikes house he was restless again discontented about nothing and everything ashamed of his discontentment and lonely for the fairy girl End of chapter three